Right now, the ascended Christ is joyful and radiant. I just love that expression in hymn 505. Uh, That hymn, which is in our hymnal, very slightly adjusted, was written by uh, a sister named Mary McDonough, who lived, I think, almost to be about 100 years old. We are so thankful that such a sister left us a hymn rich in revelation and experience, overwhelmingly positive. There's a man, not just God, there's a man in the glory whose life is for us. And we cannot see him, although in our spirit we can receive his dispensing. It is a reality that the Jesus who lived and walked on this earth, the God-man, and died for our redemption, and was resurrected with a glorified body, and to become the life-giving spirit, ascended to the highest place in the universe, And he is the God-man, the Lord of all. And he is ministering actively day and night, praying for us, shepherding us, supplying us. And he fully expects every one of us will be filled with him, saturated with him, and be part of his corporate expression. And, And he has such a provision for us through his redemption There's a solution to all of our failures, to all of our weaknesses, to all of our problems. So this morning, intrinsically, while outwardly we're having the message and responding to it, inwardly and intrinsically, let's simply behold the joyful and radiant ascended Jesus. Why is he joyful and radiant? Our sister knew this. She knew the Lord in this way because of his expectation. He's not expecting you to fail. He's expecting you to become just like him. This is what he's doing. Our general subject is the enjoyment of God and the purpose of God. And we pointed out that God's purpose is his determined intention to have on the earth with a large number of people a corporate expression of himself in Christ. The term, according to God's understanding of it, used in the New Testament for this corporate expression is church. Of course, in the natural human mind, the word church first denotes some kind of religious building. Or some may be more enlightened and they realize it's an assembly of believers. 
But the New Testament revelation, especially in Ephesians, shows us the church is the corporate expression of Christ, who is the embodiment and expression of the triune God. God's purpose in creating the universe is to have a glorious expression of himself through God-filled human beings who are one with one another in the triune God. And through them, God is glorified in the universe. For this we were created, and for this we need to enjoy God. I cannot repeat uh, the speaking last night, but in practicality, if we are to live for God and for his purpose, we need to have an overwhelmingly positive motivation, and attraction. Something that can draw us to the Lord in the midst of the world in which we have to exist outwardly. So the Lord presents himself as this wonderful, delightful, lovable person. So there's a hymn I somewhat remember my inward response when we first sang this hymn, sang this hymn, Hast thou seen him, heard him, known him? Is not thine a captured heart? That what is it that can cause human beings to turn from so many things that occupy uh, the hearts of humans and replace God in their lives? It's the sight, the awareness, the consciousness of this delightful, enjoyable Jesus. So the more we enjoy God, the more we are motivated to live for God's purpose and learn on any given day at any given time, in any situation, we learn how to be one with him then and live for his purpose then and there. So now we need to go on to for the next three messages on something more definite and more specific in relation to our enjoying God and living to him for his purpose. And very quickly, or shortly, I'll come to the outline and go through it with care. But first I need to point out a basic principle in our life with the Lord related to enjoyment. The real enjoyment of Christ is based on the experience of Christ. We cannot enjoy something 
we have never experienced. So if you are a guest in someone's home and the sister has prepared a particular meal that you've never heard of. The culture is so different, but this is a specialty in the culture in which she grew up. And she can tell you about it and present it on the table. But in order to enjoy that particular dish, you have to actually experience it by taking it into your mouth and tasting it and masticating it and assimilating it. So joy does not exist as a thing itself floating around. I enjoy married life because I'm constantly experiencing married life. We enjoy the church life according to our experience of the church life. So we need specific experiences in our life with the Lord and with each of those experiences there is a specific kind of enjoyment. Furthermore, the experiences of Christ, who is the life-giving spirit, take place in our spirit. So in order to have the experiences we need, we need to exercise our spirit, to contact and be one with the Lord Spirit. And in this oneness, the Spirit causes us to experience Christ in specific ways. Then along with that experience, we enjoy him. Enjoying the Lord is primarily a function of our soul. Our soul is the organ to express God and it's the organ to enjoy God. The overcomers who are welcomed into the kingdom will hear from the Lord, enter into the joy of the Lord. During this present age, if we are one with the Lord, consecrated to him, and are living for his purpose, our soul will suffer in a certain way because of the enemy's opposition. Of course, at the same time, as we pointed out, as Brother Nee's life testified, in the midst of that, we still have joy, but we have joy in the midst of the sorrow and the suffering and the trials. But those that live to the Lord by enjoying him, when the Lord comes, their soul will be saved 
from any kind of suffering and experience the highest joy beyond imagining. Those believers who for whatever reason do not live for God's purpose so they do not enjoy the Lord but in fact find their enjoyment mainly in the way unbelievers find enjoyment. In the matter of getting enjoyment, they're the same as unbelievers because they have this human need. It's a need. Okay, It's not just an optional thing. We need joy just as much as we need food. We need a sense of purpose just as we need air. This is a built-in human need. The open question is, where will we find it? What kind will it be? And what will be its effect on us? So those who are afraid of suffering anything for the Lord's sake and are not willing to pay any price to follow him, but are constantly protecting themselves and wanting to have an easy life, a comfortable life. Their dream is a mansion in Malibu or whatever. Then when the Lord comes, they will not be welcomed into the kingdom. Rather, they will need a period of time to mature, and God the Father has a way to handle that. So now we are coming to a particular kind of experience that has joy woven into it. And that is based on the verse we emphasized from Psalm 43, verse 4. I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. So God is called the God of exceeding joy. When you hear the word exceeding, what meaning do you attach to it? To me, exceeding means you're going beyond something. You exceeded the speed limit. That means you went beyond the limit. So the psalmist says, to God, my exceeding joy, right? Not just God, the exceeding joy. To God, my exceeding joy. That is a joy that surpasses any other kind of joy known to human beings. Exceeding joy. So I'd like to introduce this word exceeding to the word enjoyment so that we have something more definite and a testimony with greater impact. To God, my exceeding joy. 
I asked the brother to please have us read verse 3 before verse 4. Verse 3 says, it's a prayer. Send forth your light and your truth. They will lead me. They will bring me to your holy mountain and to your tabernacles. In John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus says very clearly, no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. We fallen human beings are incapable of truly coming to God on our own. He knows this. So something needs to draw us. And the verse, verse 3 says, it's God's light and God's truth. Send them forth. Send them forth to the whole earth. Send them forth to Arizona State University campus. Send them forth to all the campuses in the United States and see what happens. Send forth light and truth. Then when light and truth comes to God's chosen ones, they lead that person. So didn't the sister testify on behalf of a younger couple last night from reading the books of the ministry, Brother Nee and Brother Lee, something happened. And they left where they were and they pursued the Lord. This is the effect of light and truth. It leads us, not just in a general way, to God's holy mountain, to the position of the resurrected and ascended Christ, and to his tabernacles, his dwelling place. I'd like to give a brief testimony. I graduated with my theolo- after my theological training in Princeton in 1964. Then the Lord intervened to come in to honor the longing he put in my heart to do his perfect will, not his permissive will. Although I didn't know what his perfect will was, I chose that. I said no to what you allow. I say yes to what you intend. And at the end of that time, after the decision had been made to just follow the Lord from where I was to go to California, I was in a situation where every morning I had several hours free to study the word. And so I I went through Ephesians with the English and the Greek text, verse by verse. 
I had read the book many times. I knew more or less what was there. I just didn't know the meaning of what was there. Then I came to the verses in chapter 3 about the economy of the mystery and of God's wisdom being made known through the church, through the principalities and powers, according to his eternal purpose. And I literally gasped in amazement. I was just stunned. And then a simple prayer came out. I said, Lord, the man who can tell me what these verses mean, I will follow that man. And I wasn't saying I want to, I want to have a person to follow. I mean, if someone can show me what this these verses mean. I can follow that person's ministry. If you know this, then I can trust your ministry. It was just a fact. I was an excellent student of theology, but I knew deep within I could not trust anything or anyone among the theologians. I could not and I did not. Then, about two months later, <clears throat> I'm in California in the Bay Area, and I met a brother who had just come into the church in San Francisco. I didn't know there were churches, but he could tell from my praying that I had been reading Watchman Nee. So he took me aside and he said, I could tell the language you're using. You're reading Watchman Nee. He has a co-worker, Witnessly, who's in this country. And there are churches raised up. I just finished reading the normal Christian church life. Then he gave me some ministry material. Those that are young, you may have to do a, a Google search to find out what a mimeograph is. It was, it's an ancient way of duplicating documents, okay? You have to go to a museum to see one. Anyway, I got a mimeographed copy on uh, consecration. And another one on the ground of the church. But what intrigued me was a magazine called The Stream. And so I opened The Stream magazine. And there was the, the main article was entitled God's Purpose for the Church. With three sections. And the second section was an exposition of those verses from Ephesians 3. Then I saw it. This is it. This is what these verses are saying. 
But I saw this in relation to two other things. One is the ground of the church, the basis for the practical church life, and a continual consecration. So that light and truth in the stream magazine led me, led me to the Lord. Then the messages, the message on the ground of the church led me to the church in San Francisco. And the message on consecration led me to the altar. And for the first time, under the shepherding of a dear brother, I learned what consecration was. I never heard about it. I never thought about it. Then, from that point on, this is 51 and a half years ago, everything changed. And the two verses that the Lord made real to me almost immediately after that were these. John 14, in my father's house are many abodes. I go to prepare a place for you. And my feeling after the first meeting I attended, which was in a home, on a Saturday night. After that meeting, I just had the echo, home. Then the Lord showed me that verse, it's not about heaven. The Father's house is not heaven. The Father's house is the church. The Lord prepared a place for you, and for the first time in my life, I knew where I belonged, right here. Then the second verse was one of the parables in Matthew 13 about a merchant, very savvy, experienced merchant, looking for pearls. And he found the best of all pearls. Perfect pearl. Available at a great price. And he paid the price to obtain it. And I realized that pearl is the church. And the merchant is Christ, and the price he paid was his death on the cross. So it became clear, this way isn't cheap. It's precious. And what's precious has a price. But I can tell you, by the Lord's mercy over these last 51 and a half years, which are not a record, there are saints here who've been here longer than that, I never had a regret or a second thought about making this choice. Send forth your light and your truth. This is one of our main missions. This is one way to, to live for God's purpose is to spread light and truth throughout this vast metropolitan area. 
Just send it out. Sow the seed abundantly. Light and truth is going to reach lives all over the place. At Arizona State University, there may be students from more than 100 nations. Let's pray that light and the truth will reach students from every nation. Amen. Every nation. Amen. And they'll come into the church life here. If they stay in this country, wonderful. Otherwise, they'll go back. But we saw from the verses, the light and the truth bring us to the mountain, to the ascended Christ, to the tabernacle, to the church, but then to a specific place called the altar. I will go to the altar of God. And I realize there are some relatively newly saved ones You may not be familiar with the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, the people of Israel built this structure called a tabernacle. It's like a big tent that had two sections to it. One was called the Holy Place, the other was the Holy of Holies, and the God of glory himself came into the Holy of Holies. And when the Lord became a man, John 1.14 says, the word tabernacled among us, which indicates Christ is the real tabernacle, God dwelling with us. And God's desire is to live together with us in his dwelling place. But we have no way to enter in because We're sinful. And we have in our conscience an accumulation of the history of sins. And we're not for God, we're for ourselves. And our humanity has been damaged. And there's no peace on the earth. So there is a specific location where God comes forth to meet us and where we are drawn by light and truth to meet him. And that is the altar. So in the Old Testament, from which we have the picture, there was this altar outside the tabernacle. That altar signifies the cross. It was on the altar that all the offerings were presented, typifying Christ. And this is where our journey with God to enjoy him and live for his purpose begins. So he came out of the Holy of Holies into this earth at the age of 33 and a half, died on the cross for our redemption thereby opening the way into God. So when he was on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, indicating, I've opened the way. So you need to come to me at the altar. So we have now the subject of message two, 
enjoying the Lord at the altar of God to live the life of consecration for the central work of God. So here we have enjoying, connected with the altar of the cross, our life and consecration. So what does it mean to go to the altar of God? Well, the Lord himself is the only one qualified to suffer for our redemption. So we are not coming to a place where we suffer. We're coming to the crucified Christ in faith and love to receive him and to be one with him, the one who died and was resurrected for us. And so we believe God became a man, the man Jesus died for our redemption, and with our whole heart we believe God raised him from the dead. And now the light and the truth bring us to the cross, And God wants us and needs us to do something particular at this altar. And the word to describe that is consecration. And we'll read the outline that will give the details. But consecration is our decision in which we decide to give our consent to God to do what he wills in us, with us, and through us. And related to this, my brothers and sisters, we need to be deeply impressed with a principle of how God acts. There are two points here. When God created the first humans, he placed them in a situation of choice. There were two trees signifying two sources. The tree of life was God as the source. The tree of knowledge of good and evil signifies Satan as the source of death. And there was by that time in the universe these two sources. And the first men were created in God's image with a will. And a measure of freedom to choose. Will you obey God's command to eat of any tree, including the tree of life. See it there in the middle? Just don't eat that other tree. So that command involves responsibility and it involves our freedom. God did not create man and then force the tree of life into him. He did not create robots. He did not put a microchip in our brain to control us. We have a will to make choices. 
God does not move in our life until our will makes the proper choice. He will not violate our will. He will not force us. He will draw us the light and the truth. They draw me. They bring me. They lead me. Then I will go. I will go to the altar. It's not that they keep bringing me. It's irresistible. Now I'm here. I have no choice. No, they brought you here. Now the next move is yours. Will you go to the altar of God and present yourself to him there and to surrender to him there so that he may fulfill his purpose in you and be your joy? So we see that God does not violate our will. The second matter, God does not move when we are passive. When we are just listless, we don't do anything. Like the proverb in the book of Proverbs, talking about a lazy person. He's so lazy, he puts his hand into the dish for food, then he won't bring it to his mouth. Well, the very fact that we're created with a will, we know it's damaged, but still it has some function. God does not move when we are passive. But the enemy moves the most when we are passive. By illustrate from Revelation 3.20, the Lord says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. This is how the Lord moves in us. This is how he will operate in you again and again. I'm applying that verse as spoken to the church, to our experience. He will gently give you some feeling about something. Gently knock. But he won't force the door open. doesn't have a battering ram to knock it down. You have to open the door. If you're just in there passive, he'll stay outside until the end of your life. So you don't do some difficult work. You just recognize the Lord's voice and you open the door. Now continue the illustration. Let's say the door was open. The Lord would not walk in an open door. He will knock in the door frame. Said, hello, anyone home? Then you say, yes, Lord Jesus. And you'll come up to the door and say, come in. But the enemy, if the door is open, he'll just walk right in and go anywhere and do anything until you just get so angry at him, you kick him out. You react. It's very important we understand the experiential principles that we need because we need an experience prior to having the enjoyment. 
So the principle of the altar is we're coming to this place, the crucified Christ, really it's a person, to give our consent. We are willingly offering ourselves and everything and everyone related to us to him. We're doing this willingly. That's called consecration. So, then I will go to the altar of God. That's the first part. This is the experience part. I will go. I am here. I present myself. Then I discover something. God is my exceeding joy. Why am I so happy? I'm just an ordinary person. I calmly presented myself to the Lord under the light I received. Why am I so happy? We just consider now the Lord is on the throne. His eyes are everywhere. He knows the situation of all seven billion plus people on the earth. We know from Luke 15, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Joy among the angels of God. They rejoice. They rejoice. Here is one of the seven billion plus coming back to God. Well, of the seven billion people on the earth and of the hundreds of millions of Christians on the earth, how many live for God's purpose? How many have presented their bodies as a living sacrifice to God for his purpose? Very, very few. I recently read part of an article related to the seminary from which I graduated, and I realized how incredibly degraded you have become. Now endorsing same-sex marriage from the president on down. How degraded. That seminary has been in existence for more than 200 years. How many of the graduates ever gave themselves to the Lord? They just became, so most of them, religious professionals. So when a person of any age, from any background, has this exchange with the Lord and says, Lord, I'm just drawn here. I just love you. I just thank you. I, re- I present myself to you. My life is yours. My body, soul, and spirit are yours. I give my consent for you to work in me and operate in me. There's joy. There's rejoicing. I don't know how angels move around. Maybe your angel is doing somersaults. You know, we all got one. Mine has been working overtime to keep me alive, okay? And so because this is so joyful to God, the altar 
the altar of God now becomes the God you meet at the altar is now the God of your exceeding joy. And no one can do this for you. No parent can do this for their grown children. You cannot. Only you can come in response to the light and the truth. And I'll be honest with you. You allow the light and the truth to lead you here and to bring you to the altar and you want to give yourself it will cost you everything. Everything. Not just a few things. We're talking about your whole life, all of your relationships, all of your intentions, all of your possessions, all of your ability, all of your plans, everything. You are now gladly, willingly offered to the Lord, telling him, I agree with you. You do with me what you want. You cause me to be where you want me to be. You direct me to live where you want me to live. I am yours. This is settled forever. Then God becomes the God of your exceeding Joy. And this enables you to live for God's purpose because you have now fulfilled the principle according to which He works. Now the Lord knows He's free according to His way and time to work in you, to work with you to work in your situation. And things will happen that we never occurred to us, never ever occurred to us. He has his ways, they're higher than ours. But no matter how bewildered we may be at times, deep within, There's no regrets. A dear brother finished his course early. He wasn't even 60 years old. He had suffered so intensely. But we knew by the inner sense he finished in victory. And Don Looper's wife could testify on his behalf He lived a life of no regrets. No regrets. Those who take the way of the world to have an enjoyment, they will have momentary enjoyment, I assure you. But eventually, the result will be regret. Regret. Even if they don't repent, they regret. But to come to the altar of God, to God our exceeding joy, issues in a life of no regrets. And now we can actually live 
for God's eternal purpose and enjoy him because we have now entered into a lifelong experience of consecration and that lifelong experience will issue in a lifelong but increasing enjoyment. I long in my heart for a young person, truly a young person, maybe 17, maybe 19, to say a certain thing to his or her peers, to be able to quote a verse from Song of Songs. It says, your love is better than wine. For someone my age to tell someone 17, all oh, the pleasures of the world, their vanity, they will destroy you, they'll damage you. They'll, they'll listen with respect, but in their heart they'll be thinking, okay, you're an older person, you've tasted all of this, now you're old. We want to try things out for ourselves. But when someone your age in your situation tells you he's more enjoyable than video games. He's more enjoyable than this or that. You need enjoyment. You need some fun. But his love is better than wine. This is the testimony of a consecrated teenager to her friends to her peers, nothing religious. Now we can go through the outline. You'll see the connection between enjoying the Lord at the altar of God and living a life of consecration for what we call the central work of God. God is doing many things, but he has a central work. And everything depends on our participating in this central work. And as far as I understand from the decades of experience, this is the best way, the highest way to cooperate with the Lord. You'll see. One, the more we come to the altar of God, who is our exceeding joy the more we will live a life of consecration. And we read the verses from 2 Corinthians. It says, one died for all, therefore all died. That those who live should no longer live to themselves. To live to yourself means you set the course, you set the goals, you determine what you want to be and do. You're living to yourself. But when you live to the Lord, you let him set the goal. His will will be done. He determines the way. You live to him. You live. The Lord talked in Matthew about entering into this restricted gate. That's consecration then you walk on a very narrow pathway. That's the life of consecration. 
The Lord gives us our life one day at a time. He wants us to live now. The young, I think it's fair to say, live to a very large extent in their imagination in the future. Elderly people, for the most part, live in their memories of the past. I remember in the work I was doing, having a conversation with a dear elderly lady. She assured me she was okay. She said, I have my memories. So here you have billions of people living in their imagination for the future and hundreds of millions living in their memories of the past. Who is living in the present? Like today, March 3rd, today. Well, this is the only day we have. And it's such a good practice as the day begins to consecrate that day to the Lord. And to consecrate yourself to the Lord for that day. This is living a life of consecration. Then we have a review of the basic aspects of consecration. Consecration is our consent. See, that's the will. Our consent to God's working in us and on us. And to God's directing our ways. So even parents, I say this respectfully. Who should direct the ways of your growing children? You or God? Do you realize there's much more opposition to young people coming to the full-time training issues from parents in the church life than from unbelieving parents in the world. This is a fact. It's been the situation for decades. It's not going to stop. Because the parents think, especially under a certain cultural influence, we determine what you will study. We determine whom you will marry. We determine your profession. We decide where you will live. And if you don't do all of these things, that means you don't honor us. This is a deplorable concept. It's an insult to God. Parents, and I know what it's like, we have a responsibility to raise them, to foster their growth, to teach them morality, to provide the education, to give them the gospel. But when they become of age, they're out of our hands. But some parents won't let go. So how can such a young person go on in peace And trainees come and they struggle. I want to come back for the second term. But my father refuses. One day, a co-worker told me he attended a wedding of a sister in the Lord who had attended the training for a year. 
And she wanted so much to complete the second year. And her father strongly in, refused and insisted no. And stood upon what he thought was his parental rights. And demanded what he thought was honoring him. So she gave in. And she lost heart. And she fell in love with an unbeliever. And at her wedding meeting, he was weeping. Tears of regret. My parents were very simple people. My mother, one of 12 children, whose mother died when she was 17, and had to refuse a full scholarship to the University of Michigan because it was the Depression to move to Detroit to do menial work in a hospital to help the family stay alive. My father was one of 13 children. His father was killed in a mine accident when he was four. His education stopped with the eighth grade. He went to a trade school, then learned to be a skilled tool and die maker for the Ford Motor Company. So simple. But I remember when I was a little boy, and my mother told me, from the day you were born, we began to set aside 10 cents a day for your college education. But when it was time for me to pursue that, I was fully free to make the choices I felt I needed to make in the Lord. Only God, God alone, has the right to direct our ways. So we should not be self-directed, and we should not allow others to direct us. Genuine elders and leading ones and co-workers never presume to direct the lives or control the lives of anyone. This is God's prerogative alone. But it's our decision. You can say, Lord, I don't trust you to direct my ways. When it comes to marriage, some sister may say, Lord, no, no. I'm going to make my own choice. I'm going to direct my own ways. Because, Lord, because, you know, you want me to be transformed in all of that. You're going to make me marry an ugly, geeky, goofy brother just so I suffer for my, for my transformation. I tell the sisters, God isn't like that. Read Song of Songs. Right? Read Ephesians 5. So this is very practical. Whom do you trust with your future? You or God? Or if you are passive, the enemy will direct your future through the tide of the world. Whatever the tide is, that will be your direction. Whatever the values are, you will absorb. 
But we are here enjoying God and living for his purpose. And we say again and again, I give you my full consent to work on me, to work with me, to do whatever you want and to direct my paths. The basis of consecration is God's purchase. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The motive of consecration is God's love. So he releases his flow of love to motivate us in such a sweet way. The meaning of consecration is to be a sacrifice. Yes, a living sacrifice. The purpose of consecration is to be used by God and to work for God. The result of consecration is to abandon our future. Oh, I remember the day I consecrated myself with that brother's help. I was just shocked by what happened. I just realized I just lost my future. My whole being was oriented to the future. I had been on a certain direction since I was 16. Now I was 27. Everything was for this. My study was for this. I knew where I was going. This is my aspiration. And then it all disappeared. No future. But then I was helped by the writing of a certain believer, not in the recovery, but a dear believer. And he helped change my emphasis. It's not a matter of what is coming, but of who is coming. Not what. So the what changed to who. And so, yes, you will abandon your future, abandon our hopes, belonging wholly to God, living purely and simply in the hand of God, being what God wants us to be and doing what God wants us to do. What could be more pleasing to the heart of a God-man dad than for his 16-year-old daughter to make such a decision and tell him, Dad, I want to be what God wants me to be and do what God wants me to do. But I refer again the response of some parents, even in the churches, oh, you have to be practical. You have to be practical. This is what I want you to be. God made you with this kind of aptitude, but I want you to study this. I want you to do this. Those utterances will be remembered by the Lord unless these parents clear them before the day of judgment. Why didn't you let me be God to your own daughter, to your own son? My parents, I say again, they were so simple. But I honored them to the end and miss them still. 
but rejoiced that they were saved. But they set a pattern for me. You have to make your own choice. You have to set your own direction. Then this freed me to do this and to learn through experience. I want God to make the choice. I want God to set the direction. And now I know why. It's so that I can live day by day for his central work, which we will define. So we come to section two. God's New Testament economy is for the process and consummated triune God to be wrought into us and to become our life and our very being. See, I mentioned God's purpose is to have the church as his corporate expression. But now we need to ponder this a little. We can only express what we are. I remember when we had dogs. We had two large dogs. Delightful dogs, sheep dogs, bearded collies. And one miniature poodle named Studley. And the, the sheep dogs, they had long tail, hair covering their eyes, deep bark. So when a person would come to the door, they would run up to the door, protect the house. They're barking, barf, arf, wagging their tails. And suddenly the poodle, he wants to be there. He wants to be a big dog. So he comes up there. He has a high-pitched bark. His tail is like this. So he doesn't wag his tail. He vibrated it. <laughs> and so the big dogs are going, arf, arf. And he's going, arf, arf. <laughs> Studly. You can only express what you are. You're a poodle. <laughs> You're not a big sheepdog. Well, we're only humans. So we can't express God. How can we express God? We can only express what we are. So where am I going? God has to make you the same as he is in life and in nature and in constitution so that you express the God who has been built into your being. And that's his central work to saturate you now, at the beginning of this sentence in Roman 2, we have the word economy. And for some, that's a new word. And even for others of us, we need to know the sequence in God regarding these things. So in Ephesians 1, verse 9 says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. So remember, God is a will, what he wants and intends. In this will is his good pleasure, his delight. Based on his will and good pleasure, he formed his purpose. Then verse 11 says, in whom also we were designated 
as an inheritance, having been predestinated according to the purpose of the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, the counsel of his will is God's decision concerning the way he's going to work things out. So there was a counsel among the Father, Son, and Spirit to determine how will we handle this out? How will we work this out? Well, the Son needs to become a man and do this. Then God has an arrangement. He's very fine and detailed for every one of us, for every situation, all the time. That's the counsel of his will. And it's a very wise thing for us to learn. This is something we have to learn, to trust it. Because his ways are not our ways. They're higher than our ways. But I assure you, he knows what he's doing. And even Jacob, you know, Jacob, oh, what a way to be in a courtship. Brothers, don't follow Jacob. He sees this gorgeous woman. He's smitten immediately. How does he begin? He kisses her and starts crying. That's not the way to start. Don't do either one, okay? Don't do either one at first. I hope you do a lot of the kissing later and the minimal crying. And so we know what happens when he ends up with Leah. He wakes up in the tent. He doesn't lift his hands and say, praise you, sovereign God, all Leah's work together for good. This is just wonderful. Deep within, I always wanted her more. No, he's saying, what is this? Where, where's my racial? Laban, you cheated me, you crook. But decades later, he could say, there in Machpelah, there I buried Leah. He had the sense he knew. She was God's choice. And at the end of his life, he looked back and worshiped the Lord who shepherded him all his life long. And those of you that are young, even middle-aged, just let me assure you, you need us older guys among you. You need a lot more elderly saints who are not opinionated, they're just fresh and mature and maturing in the Lord. And they can just help you see, I look back upon my life, I can just bow and worship. I just have to worship the Lord. So Lord, I thank you that when I was 19, you ended my relationship with this girlfriend of mine. My heart was broken at the time. But now I worship you. If I had married her, oh, it would have been a mess. It would have been a mess. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. So, maybe you're like me. We will offer a lot of belated amens, thank yous, and hallelujahs. The Lord would say, it's okay. For me, a thousand years is a day. I've only been waiting seven minutes. For this, and you can, and you say, Lord, thank you for allowing that to happen, because you use that to bring me to yourself. 
That's his counsel. Then in verse 10, we have the economy. The economy is God's plan and arrangement to carry out his purpose by dispensing himself into us. So we have will, good pleasure, purpose, counsel, and economy. So here we're talking about the actual plan and arrangement for God to dispense himself into us. The most crucial and mysterious matter revealed in the Bible is that God's ultimate intention is to work himself into his chosen people. This is the main thing he wants to do. To live for God's purpose is to live for this intention. Because this is how he gains his corporate expression. God's eternal purpose is to work himself into us as our life and our everything so that we may take him as our person, live him, and express him. This is the desire of God's heart and the focal point of the Bible. So this is his purpose. It's not some objective thing that I just do this and I go there and I'm involved with this and that. It's not mainly that. It's something very personal and inward. God's purpose is to work himself into you to be everything to you, saturating you, permeating you, until you are his living expression. This is his purpose. And when we cooperate with this by coming to the altar of God, our exceeding joy, then we have such an inner joy as this work goes on. When the self is dislodged, when the self is denied and terminated, and Christ is the person living in you, this lovely, joyful, radiant person is living in you, how, and he is happy, how can you not be happy? Amen. But if you're in yourself stubbornly, that self is going to kill all joy and make you miserable and a channel of misery to anyone around you. This delightful person, Paul said, it pleased God to reveal his son in me. God was so happy to reveal his son in that opposer, Saul of Tarsus. Then Paul said, now Christ is living in me. Christ is being formed in me. He's making his home in my heart. I'm living him. I'm magnifying him. And with every step of experience, there's more joy. See, God's intention is to have Christ thoroughly worked into our being. That's his intention. It is day by day. So you can be in the shower. You can be praying. You can be at a red arrow again because of the show, slow reflexes of the cars in front of you. And, and so the Lord who is so faithful and he reminds you to say, Lord, today, work yourself into me. Okay, I really mean it. Day by day, I've said this many, many times, I mean it. Oh, it's so sweet to turn the lights out, put my head on the pillow at the end of a day, and have the sense. There's more God in me right now than when I got up early this morning. Today was not a day of waste. I, 
If you ask me how much, I don't know. I'm not trying to examine. I just have the sense today was not a waste. Today was a day of a little more opportunity for God to work himself into us. Then the last section, God's New Testament economy is centered on God's central work. So this should become our center, personally, not theoretically. I can testify to you, it is my center in my being. This is altogether the Lord's mercy for intervening in my life 20 plus years ago, and causing an inward turn, an intrinsic turn, and a change in everything. Lord, I'm living for your central work. My prayer hundreds, thousands of times is Ephesians 3. Make your home in my heart. Saturate me. Permeate me. Live in me. Christify me. Make me a duplication of you for your corporate expression. God's central work, his unique work in the universe and throughout all the ages is to work himself in Christ into his chosen people, making himself one with them. I realize I didn't read the end of point C above. However, in our spiritual seeking, we may have no concern about this, caring instead only for our own intention. So eventually in our spiritual seeking, there needs to be a shift. Lord, now I'm seeking you with a focus. Work yourself into me for the body today. And my prayer is focused on this. And anything I pray for, even if it's personal, related to health, related to relationships, related to family, it's all connected to this focus. Do this, do that, do this, Lord, for the sake of your central work. B, under three, God's purpose is to work himself into us, making himself our inward elements. That's his purpose. So the more we enjoy God, the more we cooperate with this purpose of working himself into us. This purpose is the center of the universe. And apart from this purpose, the Christian life is meaningless. It may be hard for certain saints when they're in their late middle age or whatever, who've been here for a long time, it's hard for them to say this, but I know they sense it. Lord, I'm in the church, but somehow it just lost its meaning for me. Even my Christian life has lost its meaning. Yet you, you go on, but deep within, you're not happy. Well, it's because the meaning is the center and when God's center becomes your center, everything changes inwardly. Your reading of the Bible, even if your time is very, very limited, because little children, they don't know this is mommy's morning revival time. They're getting up at 5.40, and they're just alert, and they don't know this is your private prayer time. And so it's cut short. But you're very clear God's central work is to work himself into you. And now he's going to use this toddler 
to work himself into you a little more right now. And in this case, more will happen through the toddler than through your Bible reading, although he wants you to read the Bible because he's operating all things. The proper priority is not for us to work for God, but for God to work himself into us. Spiritual progress consists in allowing God to gain ground within us. Okay? You'd like to make spiritual progress. You don't want to be careful here. This is positive. But still the Lord cover me and cover the brothers. But as I was praying with the brothers last night before the meeting and before the meeting this morning, I wasn't looking for this. But I could just tell by their prayers. There's been a lot of the increase of Christ in all these brothers. The tone, the content, the sense of their prayers is an expression of what's been going on in their inner being. This last year since I've been here, it's not been a waste. The Lord's been increasing in so many brothers and sisters. This is our progress. Okay, allowing God. Oh, he's God, omnipotent. But you may allow him or not allow him. God will, in a sense, obey you, at least honor your decision. Why not just tell him? If you're passive, you won't do anything. So let's say a, a brother is ready to propose to the sister he loves. They've been courting one another and he takes her to this certain place and he gets down on one knee. I don't know why they do this, but I guess... Anyway, they want to do it. Okay, they down on one knee and open the little box and says all the things. Will you marry me? And the sister is. <laughs> the Lord brought us together. I love you. Will you marry me? So he closes the box, gets up on both feet and says, uh, I'll take you home now. Because passivity equals no. Okay? Only yes is yes. No is no, and no answer is also no. So don't be passive with God when he, when he comes on one knee with a little box with something precious in it and says, I want to be your husband. I want you to be part of my wife. Don't be passive thinking you're being spiritual. You're following life in peace. No, this is the passivity of death. Don't, don't stay in the passivity of death. Exercise your spirit. And do what the sisters always do. They cry tears of joy. They're just rejoicing. They're smiling. And you got people taking pictures. They go viral. We're all so happy. I get emails. This is the one we rejoice with you because the sister wasn't passive. Of course, the brother was the first to take action. Some of them, they need, they need some prodding, right? <laughs> Come on, be a man. Be a man. Be a, men take action. Let the woman be a woman. Be a man, man. Okay, that's my little urging for the single brothers. Be a man. Take action. 
God is behind you. The body's pulling for you. The sister's been waiting for months. But on the sister's part, when it happens, don't be like this. So don't come to the Lord in the morning. Lord, I, I love you. You just say, don't wait for a feeling. Say, Lord, I turn my heart to you. I open my heart to you. Lord, I call on you. I love you. I give you this day. Cleanse me with your blood. I take you as the offerings. Then he will work. See, the more we enjoy the Lord by living a life of consecration for the central work of God, the more we become a person who cooperates with the triune God in his central work. So we enjoy and then we advance. So what kind of person? Poor in spirit? Pure in heart? Drops everything within him in order to seek the Lord with a single heart? One who turns to the Lord in a simple way? One who takes care of the inner sense of life? One who is willing to be enlightened. One who is open to be filled with God as his content. This is on our part. We turn, we open, and we're willing. So may the light and truth be set forth. Lead us to God's holy mountain, to his tabernacles, and then we respond. We go to the altar of God. To God, our exceeding joy. Here our journey begins. Here we make the decision. Lord, I am yours forever. Make me what you want. Cause me to do what you want. I'm living here for your purpose. Then the Lord says, yes, I am happy. And now I'm going to bring wave upon wave of enjoyment into your life in the midst of all the situations of human life. And I will continue my central work in you. This is the heart. Please bring this to the Lord personally. We've got about 15 or 17 minutes to share this uh, with confirming words. And I'd like to make an appeal to those who do not speak English as their first language. We have a good number of Spanish speakers. Please don't hold back. Just stand up and speak in Spanish. Someone will interpret for you or any other language. Okay? We're all in this together. We need your portion. Please pray in Spanish. Sing in Spanish. Prophesy in Spanish. Someone will translate for you. We need everyone's spirit to flow. It'd be good if we limited the speaking to about a minute, although we're not going to clock and play the... The, the piano. So maybe a good number can give some confirming testimonies. So please now, don't be like this. The Lord is knocking on your heart, telling you stand up and speak for a minute and share something to confirm the word this morning. Okay, it's your turn. Please go ahead. Redeem the time by being one with the Lord.